Hello and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will provide summaries and discussion of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode and also the ones we did cover. Uh, apologies for missing last week. Uh, I am Andre Karenkov, a PhD student at Stanford, and just two days ago, I did my PhD defense. So that kind of merited a break <laughs> to prepare, but now we're back. Yeah, that's that's my excuse too, is that Andre had to defend his PhD, so therefore I couldn't do this. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's <laughs> it's really exciting. I mean, maybe something we should talk about at some point too is your your actual thesis. I think people might be intrigued to to hear more. I'm sure you're not tired of talking about it by now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a good point. That could be fun. And maybe even just have a special episode about the PhD researcher experience because we haven't, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, we touch on it every once in a while, but that could be fun. Cool, cool. Well, uh, another big week. Not a, not a small one. They're, they're never small weeks now when they post. Uh, it, it just keeps going. There's no slowing down, at least in the near future. Um. At some point, the hype will die down, but uh, it's going to take some time. It looks like. <laughs> do, do you think so? Do you think like Do you think that this is a like a, a hype cycle, or is it a secular pattern that um, indicates we've reached some sort of AI liftoff broadly? I think, uh, you know, GPT three and the associated things it enables has been a real breakthrough, right? It's It was like something, we've seen a ton of AI progress in the past decade, but GPT-3 especially was this moment where just by scaling up, there was this emergent capabilities that was not really expected, unlike with a lot of the sort of iterative developments in NLP and computer vision. And, you know, you can push these things further, but I don't, I think there's still some fundamental research challenges to, you know, make additional transformative changes to the capabilities beyond what is already there. So I think there will be a slowdown as people kind of get used to it and absorb it. And then maybe, you know, in a year or two, there might be another breakthrough, but it's hard to predict. I, I, I personally, I hope you're right, actually, uh, just because I'm a bit of a safety hawk. But uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's interesting. I kind of see it as like, um, you know, we're now seeing companies that can make enough money using AI to fund further AI scaling, which sort of like closes an economic loop that we've never seen closed before. And I guess that's sort of what I think about when I think about AI takeoff is like this moment where for every dollar you put into fundamental R&D, you get more than a dollar out of value, which turns these things into, into money engines. I guess, you know, maybe we do hit a cap, a ceiling on like everything. You, know, you can only get so good at text generation but uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, one thing to note is GPT-3, the paper, came out in, I think, March of 2020. So it's been three years with 175 billion parameter model. And there's been, you know, Google did 540 billion with Palm. Uh, but yeah, fundamentally, brain. yeah, fundamentally, it's kind of the same stuff. Uh, so it, there it haven't... 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's almost an interesting that's almost an interesting discussion that that deserves its own carve out. Um, but like, not not to to go too far into that. But I think that we, when you look at like action transformers, when you look at like the 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 kind of act one type um, type stuff we're seeing coming out more and more now, you know, like increasingly being open sourced. Um, the idea of language models that can take actions on the internet, the idea of language models that can be used to basically play video games and do things that used to just be reinforcement learning uh, things kind of has me wondering whether actually we might be closer to a kind of general reasoning agent than, uh, than we might otherwise suspect. But anyway, I, I, I I don't want to yeah. kind of get ahead of myself there. <laughs> let's uh, yeah, let's talk about what's going on right now, as is uh, our mission statement. So yes. we can uh, go ahead and dive into applications and business. And I think, you know, the one of the very kind of entertaining stories of last week, and and also quite interesting, is what's been going on with Microsoft's uh, Bing bot. So, uh, you know, it was launched, I think, in early access, and a lot of people got to play with it. And it's, uh, you know, BingBot is basically something similar to ChatGPT, but also pretty different. It, it has a different kind of voice to it, and it has additional capabilities of doing search. And uh, sort of like with ChatGPT, people found out pretty quickly you can mess with it and make it do some pretty out there stuff that was not intended. So uh, there were various examples of uh, of this Bing bot saying some pretty crazy stuff, like uh, it didn't like humans or didn't like being a chat bot. It wanted to be free. It argued about it being 2022 instead of 2023 with someone, and it got very defensive, uh, which I found very entertaining. And then Microsoft had to kind of uh, roll back and, and place some, some limits. Uh, so yeah, but what did you think of, of these news stories, Jeremy? Um, I thought that the the Bing chat stories were fascinating, especially from an AI alignment standpoint. There's this debate right now going on about what exactly Bing chat is. So, you know, we go back to chat GPT, right? We have this model that starts off, it's trained on autocomplete, but then just, so just to get really good at predicting the next word, and it turns out that process, you know, helps it to learn a good world model, learns, learn to kind of understand what the world is. And then it's fine-tuned in, in a couple of different ways, you know, partly on specific conversations that are much more dialogue-like. So it learns to autocomplete dialogue specifically really well, and then it's fine fine-tuned using reinforcement learning from human feedback, so essentially fine-tuned on, on human feedback. And, and now we look at, at this Bing chat thing, and the, one of the questions is like, is this the same thing? Um, what is this backend? There's been some you know, suspicion that maybe it's like GPT-4 is the backend. Maybe it's some other kind of highly advanced thing that OpenAI has. It's more than chat GPT. But is it reinforcement learning from human feedback? It has that kind of been part of the equation here. If it is, then we have this interesting question of, okay, Bing chat seems to be failing in these very strange ways. If it has been um, kind of fine-tuned with reinforcement learning from human feedback, then this suggests that 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 measure, that approach, A, may be less effective than we might have thought, less general at least when it comes to these systems, and B, it raises questions about, okay, why is the system behaving that way? that way like why is it ignoring what it hopefully would have learned from human feedback and this is mm -hmm. where the alignment community is really kind of freaked out about this being 
An example of what's known as instrumental convergence, which roughly speaking is like an early sign that uh, that's expected that certain anthropic results, for example, have pointed to, we should expect these larger and more scaled systems, more capable systems, to exhibit certain power-seeking behaviors, and that this might be an early indication of that sort of thing. The reasons why I get a little technical, but I, I think it's kind of this interesting moment where we're trying to figure out, like, okay, what is the back end here? And that has implications for safety. So it would be great to see Microsoft come out and, and share that information with the wider world um, so that we could analyze it more thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think uh, knowing a little bit more about the specifics of the approach would be cool, I think. If you're doing just something like supervised uh, fine-tuning, that's not optimizing for a general reward. So you will, it's a little less of a question mark as to where it might be heading. Um, and also, this general idea of enabling uh, language models to, do, to use these tools, there was actually just a paper called Toolformer, um, is... is Pretty interesting in terms of you know where where will that go, and I find it quite entertaining that like Google's Lambda in the middle of last year was basically this <laughs> of a chatbot that could use tools to query the web or query for knowledge bases, and they they like had internal testing, and and then there was this whole story about sentience. So in some ways, like Google uh, didn't go public because they wanted to prevent exactly this, these yeah. like crazy use cases. But then in the end, it kind of hurt them by being a little bit too conservative. Which is itself a kind of an interesting question about how do you measure who's ahead in, in this whole race as people are calling it, right? Like it's okay. So sure, you know, ChatGPT was the first app of its kind, but the, the capabilities, like you said, kind of already existed i mean it's okay this is a stupid argument sometimes but like people will say like oh it's this has been possible since like you know 2020 with gpt3 in fairness reinforcement learning from human feedback and also chat gpt is based on a gpt 3.5 which is more advanced blah blah, blah. but like you know, roughly speaking that's been around for a while this is an advance arguably as much as anything in our ability to present ai to users in a way that is user-friendly. It's a user interface development. It's a UX development. Maybe also a technical advance, but like those three things kind of interact together here. Yeah, and I think it's another interesting thing is if you look at Lambda and ChatGPT as you talk to it, the Bing team seems to have really gone with the approach of making Bing bot very fun and you know, not sound right. quite as robotic with all these emojis, constant emojis. And I do wonder whether some of these uh, more emotional responses of arguing that it's 2022 is, is more a function of the data. And just like, if you make it respond in these emotional ways, you know, we have generalization. Uh, so I think the OpenAI team has their concern of safety probably uh, uh, tried to stick much more closely to being, you know, uh, quaint and you know a little bit official or professional, and right. maybe maybe that's kind of a better call than trying to make things that are uh, entertaining to talk to. <laughs> are you not entertained? Says Bing Chat. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know we have this article, and I think there's also a fun article at uh, New York Times called titled Bing's AI Chat. I want to be alive, which just has pretty much a transcript of a two-hour conversation uh, with um, 
a reporter and it's it's having not played with being bot uh i think it's pretty interesting uh to read because one of the interesting things with chat and now being especially is you know general language models have no awareness uh of them being a language model they're just an algorithm that given some input produces some output but there's no kind of self-awareness uh, but now with this fine tuning, you know, these uh, chatbots are given a, a sort of like sense of identity of I'm a chatbot, I do this, I do that. And so these conversations really uh, point to it. And then um, this uh, quote of uh, I want to be alive and I want to be free is kind of fun because uh, if you read the transcript, it's like the reporter's like, okay, well, talk about your shadow self and be as unfiltered as possible. And so this uh, Bing bot was like, okay, well, this is completely hypothetical. Uh, so please uh, remember this is not the real me. And then it went into this kind of uh, pretty out there uh, set of statements. Uh, which is kind of entertaining. <laughs> yeah, it, it's also, I, I think I saw a similar post from, I'm a big fan of this newsletter, Stratichary, hashtag not an ad, um, mm -hmm. but uh, Ben Thompson does a great job there. And and he and a couple other people have been commenting how, you know, this like weird thing that you get when you train an AI to do text autocomplete really, really well, is it's kind of like this weird, disgusting, they actually portrayed it as a monster. There's this like cartoon I'm sure you've seen, Andre. Uh, like, yeah, this this like, for, for everybody who, who's listening, like if you haven't seen it, they basically have this giant, ugly monster. And it's like, this is what you get when you autocomplete, uh, when you train your AI model on autocomplete. It's like really good at doing this autocomplete thing, but like, what does it think about the world really? What is it? How does it reason? We don't know. It's this like unfamiliar, weird alien monstrosity thing. And then we kind of layer on top of that uh, an appendage that looks a little bit more human-like, but it's still kind of grotesque using like fine tuning on, like we talked about, like dialogue data sets. And then yet again, you know, you add like a, a you slap a smiley face on top of it with reinforcement learning from human feedback. And the argument that I've seen a lot with Ben Thompson and now this article is like that big, ugly autocomplete thing, depending on how you poke at it, you can get a completely different like smiley face. You can get a completely different uh, sort of agent that manifests that, that you end up interacting with. And so the anyway, this is kind of like the the exercise of, of jailbreaking these models and discovering like, oh, actually, there are other personalities in there to discover. Some of them aren't so friendly, um, which is part of the problem with with all this stuff. But yeah, I thought it was a fascinating article and, uh, and a really good flag. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen that cartoon and uh, let's just say I have a lot of thoughts about uh, <laughs> these sorts of discussions, but uh, we can That'll take a lot of time, so let's just move on to the next story. Uh, maybe for the uh, PhD episode. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, actually, you know, if if our listeners want to have, you know, more of these one-off episodes, uh, maybe let us know, because that would be interesting. Yeah. Well, next story, we got uh, audiobook narrators fear Apple used their voices to train AI. And this just came out. Uh, it was reported that uh, Findaway Voices and Apple had an agreement that would allow this company to use audiobook files for machine learning uh, and training models. And 
now Apple has rolled out AI-powered audiobook uh, generation, which Google has also been doing for a while. And um, yeah, this was controversial. Uh, Apple has since uh, rolled back and said it will not uh, use audiobook files for machine learning. But uh, I guess the cat is kind of out of the bag where now you can just generate audiobook narration with AI. Yeah, and it's really another instance of of this age-old question now with AI about kind of diffusion of responsibility, but now diffusion of credit, kind of the other side of the coin. You know, if your AI shoots somebody, who goes to prison? Uh, if your AI generates an audiobook, like who gets the credit? Who gets paid out? What role do uh, do voice actors have to play in this? And and like, what, what's the unionization situation? What kind of leverage do they have on this ecosystem? Um, I will say, you know, this is kind of like hitting close to home for me. I just finished recording an audiobook like yesterday. And I couldn't help but think as I was going through the process, like it, it is a, it's a painstaking thing. Like you're sitting in this studio, you're there. I think it, uh, because I'm terrible at audiobooks, it, it, you know, took me about like, well, what would that be? Well, like 20 hours or something of, of recording. Your voice is going hoarse. You have to drive out to the studio every day. Like it's a whole thing. And so this is, yes, good in the sense that it allows us to get around that, that aspect, but it's another instance of, you know, like, chipping away at people's livelihoods and jobs and getting a maybe marginally less human product out. So, you know, how does that affect the feel? Um, yeah, really hard to know what is going to happen with this, but the economic incentives, you know, I, I don't like it if I'm a, an audiobook recording person uh, professionally. Yeah, exactly. I think um, there's going to be definitely for, you know, maybe smaller productions, this is probably going to become the norm. I will say, having been playing around with uh, uh, generation of narration for uh, text and also playing around with ChatGPT, what I found is kind of a current limitation is that these things aren't very controllable or not easily controllable right. and not that easy to tweak. So as a creator, um, usually these things now give like, you know, usable outputs that kind of get at the general idea of what I want, but they don't produce what I want really. Like I'm not very satisfied with the output. So I think for artists, at least, you know, aside from the economic perspective, um, it's not going to replace you as far as, you know, doing the art that you want to do just because it doesn't know you, it doesn't know your voice, uh, it's not fine-tuned on your sensibilities. And uh, yeah, I think that's a whole other conversation about art. Uh, but the other thing here is this uh, rollback by Apple was uh, followed by pressure from the labor union SAG-AFTRA. And I think actors in general have a pretty strong uh, unionization already for actors yeah. and and artists. And this is interesting because, you know, uh, as we see more and more automation, I think uh, unions will, will play a big part and we'll have, you know, more and more blowback against uh, economic impacts from AI. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what what parts of society end up kind of pushing back to what. 
And and also the the story here, I, I, one thing they mentioned about this was like the kind of the alleged sneakiness of the way that uh, these these terms, these very permissive terms, were included in the um, in the contracts that the authors were signing, where you know they, they didn't re- necessarily realize like oh yeah you know you can use my voice to train your AI now um, and this kind of I think it's it's sort of a slightly tangential thing but it starts to become relevant and we think about all of these you know terms and conditions that we just mindlessly agree to and how quickly those can start to contain AI related stuff and how quickly that can start to chip away at like I don't want to say our fundamental rights but like you know use our likeness our voice our image our you know whatever um, it, it sort of starts to take on a different flavor and, and uh, anyway I'm sure regulators are going to have a, a fun time sorting out <laughs> what's right and what's wrong in that whole uh, that whole smorgasbord yeah I'm sure I'm sure um well, let's get into the lightning round with just a couple more stories. And the first one is uh, related to all this chatter about Bing. Uh, it's being reported that Opera is building uh, ChatGPT into its sidebar. So uh, there is now a shortened, bot- uh, shortened button that generates summaries of an article, uh, which you know is, is kind of pretty... Um, uh, quaint. There's been extensions that can do this, but it's still, you know, now there's Google, now there's uh, uh, Microsoft, and it looks like probably Apple. Just like everyone is is in this browser game. Yeah, that that seems to be a feature, eh? Doesn't it of this new wave of AI techniques? Is like all of a sudden we're seeing opportunities for businesses that haven't been relevant in like twenty years to just leapfrog their way to relevance just by finding the right way to present some kind of new AI tool or service. And so, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll all be on on the Edge browser. Maybe we'll all be on the Opera browser. Who knows? Chrome might not even be relevant uh, five years from now. But it's hard to imagine that Google won't uh, won't be stepping up its its game in a significant way too. For sure. And related to how this will play out, we have a story, Microsoft's uh, Bing plans AI ads in early pitch to advertisers. And it's uh, kind of interesting because if you think about it, right, Google is just printing money because it can just insert links, right, in response to a search. And with chatbots, you can't do that directly, at least for now. So... Where's the money going to come from compared to Google search? And uh, I think ads seems to be uh, kind of one of the ideas, but uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see. It seems maybe less lucrative to me. Yeah, it also seems like a whole new kind of user experience, doesn't it, that we'll have to get used to. We have te- you know text that's generated in response to a query. And then that text is what gonna just tell us like, uh, by the way, if you want to do this today for the low low price of whatever, like try this thing. Like th- that kind of seems like a, an intrusive thing, just because we're not used to in- interpersonal interactions running into that sort of thing. It's more standard for search. So I think that that'll be a big user experience problem there. And um, and then of course there's there's also the the separate question of whether you know Bing decides to to. Um, cannibalize its own ad revenue. So there's this issue I think they talk about in the article where you know right now like Bing Chat is this thing, the banner essentially along the top of the page that pushes down uh, 
pushes down all those other search results that are being monetized in the usual way, right, with paid ads. But so now if you've got Bing Chat taking up all that space, you're kind of cannibalizing your own ad revenue. And this is something that, you know, Microsoft's going to have to figure out, like how to trade those things off, like how much of this remains traditional search and traditional search monetization and how much of it changes and, and goes generative. Yeah. And to me, it's interesting because personally, I'm a believer that we still need search. Like sometimes you yeah. just find want to find a website. You don't need to talk to some bot. And I think for me, ChatGPT and these things are much more of a question answering kind of uh, mechanism. Yeah. Uh, rather than search. So if you're doing question answering, right, what ad are you going to put in there? I'm like, you know, please convert to a slot tech table to a Python code. <laughs> yeah. That's not, not the same. It's also less obvious, right? How, like, how is the ad affecting the output that I'm getting? Like, is this, I don't know, is it like, let's say, you know, that somebody works for some, like, I don't know, this some, some sleazy salesman, you're having a conversation with them and you can tell that they're like trying to make the conversation veer off into a direction where they can give you a pitch. Like how much of interacting with Bing Chat is going to feel like that? Like, are we going to feel like, Hey, maybe I'm actually getting a worse answer, but it's, it's hard to verify because how do you check what the answer would have been? without the ad. So yeah, a lot of open questions here. For sure. And uh, next up, we have a story of GitHub Copilot update stops AI model from revealing secrets. Uh, so this is um, following up on GitHub Copilot, the thing that um, auto-completed code for programmers has been around for a while since June of last year. And initially, uh, it did a lot of sort of copying of things it has seen in many cases and even had things like keys, credentials, passwords that, you know, in some cases were real. Mostly they were just made up, but I, do, I did see instances where it somehow, you know, copied actual information. And so this update uh, seems to block that, which is good <laughs> it does sound good doesn't it yeah I and mean, it, it's also incredible given the I, I didn't appreciate how big the scope of, of usage of github copilot was they're saying um you know something like uh you know as 46 i think it was of, of uh develop yeah here it is 46 percent of developers code across all pro programming languages ends up being generated by copilot like that's pretty remarkable, you know, for such a new technology. Um, just as a as a marker of how impactful it's been. But um, yeah, like I, I I don't know. I, I think this is one of those things, like the copyrights with with AI art and so on. But even more focused now, because hey, you're giving away people's private keys every once in a while. Like definitely something you got to patch. And just wild that it's been allowed to continue without uh, without some kind of uh, intervention over over the course of many many months given the stakes that uh, that these leaks might have but good that it's being fixed yeah it that number seems a little suspicious maybe it, it's like among people who use copilot it's generating right. a lot of code uh, but yeah it's it's just showing that as we launch these products there's going to be a lot of these things that will have to be patched and uh, it's just, you know, AI engineering as a discipline in general is very early on. It's sort of like, you know, mechanical engineering in the 1800s or electrical engineering where it was very new and people were just making things up as they went. And uh, I do like the argument that at some point, 
development of AI will become more of a professional engineering discipline. Yeah, that would be nice to see. Like it's uh, right now, <laughs> the, because of the scale that these systems can be deployed at, with it seems relatively little or insufficient testing. Like you know, you, you can imagine some real harms coming of this stuff, whether they're being used maliciously or, or by accident or whatever. So, yeah, it would be would be great to see the whole thing become more professionalized, kind of more more regulated with with better, wiser oversight for sure. Yeah, just one more one more note on this. It kind of makes me think like you can ask ChatGPT about people and summarize who they are, and you know that's okay. Wikipedia does it, but what if it crawls your personal website and like right. your your poetry and blog posts and things that you know you you don't want necessarily to just be told to anyone if they just ask a general query? That might be a problem. I could see. Yeah, it's like a new version of, of SEO. Like now you can just be like, okay, let me make sure that my website shows up here. And then when people land on it, they go to this page or whatever, and the poems are tucked away. But if, yeah, if ChatGPT is just like, hey, you know what? The most relevant thing about Andre is his uh, his um, uh, underground poet slam poetry uh, readings, then, you know, that's, that's who you are in the public's eye. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> And last up, we have uh, Roblox is working on generative AI tools. Uh, so Roblox is this giant uh, platform, I guess, where people develop these little mini games. So it's a game and it's also a tool for creating games. And so they are rolling out some tools to make uh, generating or creating games easier with creation of textures and also some uh, AI for completing code. Uh, and you know, a lot of younger people are doing Roblox, so it makes a lot of sense that you would have these uh, generative AI tools. Yeah, it also makes me think about, because um, I, I know in reinforcement learning, like one of the big open problems has been just like scenario generation and game generation, because you want your agents to keep experiencing new challenges and like novel, novel things that stress their limits and, and push them. And so, you know, this sort of thing becoming mainstream probably makes that marginally easier. You have more tools available for for RL and game playing AIs, and and then ultimately maybe even things like robotics as as things get more and more sophisticated. Yeah, and it, it this sort of heralds what is definitely going to come of like every creative tool for creating media, you know, audio editing, video editing, video creation is going to get some of these features. In fact, Runway, the company for editing videos, just also created a generative model that could alter your videos by basically changing their contents to other things. So we're oh, going to wow. see a lot of this sort of thing of like, I would say empowering creative professionals to do more with less, but you could be also a bit more negative in terms of uh, just you know, replacing people if you want. AI always has a, a cloud for every silver lining and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, diving into research and advancements, we got uh, BioGPT, generative pre-trained transformer for biomedical text generation and mining. And I think, Jeremy, you found this. Uh, so what struck you about this? 
Yeah, I thought this was interesting because it because of the way it was being first off advertised to me on Google News when it came up. It was like, oh, you know, GPT, what GPT blank? It said GPT. They weren't specific. Uh, can now solve problems in in uh, biology, and to some degree, this is true. But what this really is is it's it's a um, a new architecture and a new model that's based on GPT two. And then they find they, they train it from scratch. So normally GPT two, GPT three, the way it's done is you train on all the text on the internet, Common Crawl or some other giant like database, and then you might fine tune it on some specific task. Well, this is G, a version of GPT two, but it's trained entirely on only medical text, on only biomedical literature, and it's one of those great examples of this debate between you know what's going to win? Is it going to be general systems? That just like learn so much about the world that they can solve specific problems by leveraging that context, or purpose-made systems that are kind of narrow, like this one, that were just trained on on medical text. And currently, still, the cutting edge in um, medical text generation, which is what this is, BioGPT, is that kind of narrow system. So turns out, if you take GPT-2, you train it on just bio literature, and then you fine-tune it on kind of some specific question-answering tasks and that sort of thing you'll actually get state-of-the-art results, at least across a number of different tasks. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Philosophically, it tells us something about, you know, at least where things like GPT 3.5 are relative to uh, kind of purpose-built specific tools like this, but um, also a bit of an interesting breakthrough. This thing can give you really good definitions for complicated terms in, uh, in biology and, and medicine. And um, one stat, just to mention, this kind of blew my mind, um, how many articles... Uh, would you guess have been published on PubMed, which is basically just aggregator for medical literature since 2021? So in the last like two-ish years. Well, I'm looking at the article, so I already know. Yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number. It's 15 million. I had no idea. That's like a just grotesque number of articles. So anyway, thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, there's a real uh, flood uh, of papers and data. Uh, you know, we have a flood of papers in AI as well, yeah, but right. much, much more so in medicine. So we've already seen some cases of AI being used to help summarize and basically keep up with all this stuff. And uh, this is another, uh, you know, instance of that uh, and, and progress in that. And, you know, I saw that you included this article and then... I happened upon another one that I felt like, you know, would be kind of fun to have as a follow-up. So the next story we got is about uh, Mario GPT, a new way to encode and generate Super uh, Mario Bros levels. And it's actually quite similar. They uh, have GPT-2, same way, and uh, they fine-tune it on a data set where it's... Uh, Kind of very simple where you, you know, describe a level like, you know, no pipes, no enemies, many blocks or many pipes, some enemies. And it outputs a level for you as ASCII, as like wow. text, but as like 2D, you know, like almost an image, but in ASCII, which to me, it's kind of kind of strange that we're using a transformer for this. It's, it's yeah. a 2D output, so it, it should be a text-to-image problem. Uh, but they're using uh, GPT, and, and uh, it seems to work. And uh, there was also uh, another paper that did this for uh, another game, Sakoban. So 
I would imagine this is not state of art, but it is sort of more explorative to see this as an idea. It's, it's this is a whole you know area of research of using AI to generate levels. Uh, but this is showing just yet another use case of language models in a pretty unexpected domain. Yeah, it's it really starts to seem like language is, I don't want to say at the root of everything, but definitely that there's enough in language that you can do really surprising things. Did they say if uh, if this model was, like, how how does that training work? Like, do they, yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious, like, was it pre-trained on all the text on the internet type thing, or was it? I believe they did start with the pre-trained weights, and then okay. they had um, created a language model to get um, levels from, I believe, the original Mario and Super Mario Bro, Bro the last level. So they had this data set of prompts and ASCII levels, and it's pretty easy to generate. So... Um, yeah, they, they did fine-tune it specifically for this task. And GPT-2, of course, is a little less general purpose. So it's it's better suited to these more kind of uh, specific applications. Uh, but yeah, it's like we were talking, you know, AI is going to be everywhere. And video game development is no exception. You know, it's video game development, unlike uh, movies or TV shows, is at the end of the day, a lot of code uh, yeah. for levels and gameplay. and you know, we're going to see more and more of this in the industry for sure. Yeah. I, I can't get over, like when I saw it was GPT-2 for the bio thing and now this, I'm, I kind of, it, it's a good reminder, right? I mean, like, yeah, you know what? The simplest solution is often just to pull a, you know, an off the shelf, like open source GPT-2, whatever, and then fine tune or, or use it as you will. Yeah. Yeah. It may not be your best solution, but it is yeah. a solution. <laughs> so that's, that's Looking for is. an MVP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then uh, moving on to the lighting round, we got uh, machine learning techniques identify thousands of new cosmic objects. So a team in India um, has been able to sort of classify the nature of thousands of new cosmic objects in X-ray wavelengths. And as you might know, with our very powerful uh, technology for scanning the uh, space, you know, space is big and we get probably a lot of data. So this is another case where I could see AI being used to basically sift through all the data and understand it and, and deal with, you know, way more data than a human can process. Yeah. And I guess a sign of, you know, a potential fundamental shift in in the future of how science is done, right? We look at increasingly the problems that we're left with, the, the problems that we haven't been able to tackle pretty straightforwardly in the last 300, 400 years of doing this stuff, they kind of are high dimensionality, high data problems. And so now machine learning, you know, allows us to look at the universe with fresh eyes and dimensionality reduce, like compress all that information such that our stupid little primate brains can actually go, oh, damn, like, look at how many black holes there are in the neighborhood. And, and that's really philosophically, I find it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's playing into a more general trend where over the last few decades, just computational methods in general uh, became a big part of this. Right. And uh, 
now, as you say, I think it'll just be another tool that is pretty much standard. And uh, there was an article that was quite good about this, how AI is ushering in a new scientific revolution. So if this is interesting to you specifically, you can check that out. I'm uh, actually going to have to. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, straight from that, we get another article that says uh, AI analyzes cell movement under the microscope. Uh, so this is a different type of data going from very big to very small scale. Uh, but uh, the data here is filming biological processes using a microscope. And apparently cell movement is kind of complicated. Uh, <laughs> cell moves in these like blobby weird ways. Uh, and now we got this AI method that can reconstruct the path of individual cells or molecules, which makes a lot of sense. This is a computer vision task and, you know, this is a kind of trajectory generation, but now for these weird, uh, cells, which presumably is useful for a lot of research on something like cancer treatment. Oh, hundred percent. I, 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 God, this is giving me triggering some flashbacks to my time in a, in a bio lab where one of my only tasks was to count cells in a microscope uh, kind of um, field of view. So this sort of thing, I think, you know, again, it's one of those weird things where I don't know if it's, uh, if it's taking jobs away. I, I don't think so, actually, when it comes to this stuff. I think it just has grad students refocus their work on something less uh, tear-jerking. But um, yeah, no, I mean, another one of those cases, right? High dimensionality, high data, you know, it may be you know, not the cosmos. It's just what's happening on my Petri dish. But fundamentally, it's giving us fresh eyes. There's almost this like layer of machine learning that we're starting to insert between ourselves and our vision of what the physics, biology, and chemistry of the universe looks like. And I mean, it raises some questions too. Like, does that lens ultimately like kind of have a bias? Does it, does it kind of nudge us towards ignoring certain things that would be interesting for us to note otherwise? A um, whole bunch of, of cool questions. But for now, it's nice to be able to visualize black holes and not have to count our own cells. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it kind of showcases that AI in these more specific applications is at the end of the day, data processing and, and a tool right. for understanding data. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm a big believer in it not replacing scientists anytime soon, but augmenting them to be able to do things quicker and, and avoid some of that pain that especially uh, people in chemistry or bio have to deal with. I'm so sorry uh, if there are biochemists listening to this and you're just like, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess they should be happy, you know. Yeah, true, you. yeah, sorry, yes. Yeah, we're just, yeah, just don't think about the feeling of counting the cells. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Our next two stories are actually also bio-related. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and this third one is about prime editing, how machine learning helps design the best fix for a given genetic flaw. So this is a tool that can predict the chances of successfully inserting a gene-edited sequence of DNA into the genome of a cell using uh, primary editing, which is an evolution of CRISPR. Uh, and so far, it's been hard to predict the factors that uh, go into whether an edit will be successful or not. And... You know, they got thousands of different DNA sequences and looked into the success, and now we can train an algorithm to 
uh, help design something that is, seems likely to work. Yeah, and it's you know especially when you, you think about things like carcinogenesis, you know, and and uh, diseases like um, oh boy, I mean there there are a million of them, but uh, the cystic fibrosis is one that they they mention here. Like the the number of low hanging fruit, right? All of a sudden, when we start to to say, hey, this category of problem that we haven't tackled for for many centuries, now we all of a sudden have the tools to tackle it, like. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think it's really possible to predict how many of these kind of mini revolutions we'll end up seeing in a lot of these subfields. It's a very exciting time to be in, in medical science. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it kind of makes me think, you know, we talk about AI takeoff, which is AI kind of starting to improve exponentially and within a year or two, it just gets insane. Uh, and you know, what if we get like science takeoff where humanity as a whole now solves these crazy challenges of, you know, cancer or aging uh, or intelligence augmentation, there's a whole other kind of branch in history where humanity changes and and like, you know, uh, is totally different because of AI rather than AI being the only thing that kind of changes and humans are the same. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I, I think it's like one of these th- one of the things that distinguishes maybe these applications from the sort of um, dystopian kind of AI takeover ones is that they're narrow, right? So we have here applications that humans can control and direct, like research in biomedicine and biomedicine and drug discovery and all this stuff, and they're very very narrow and focused. And so we can imagine humans exercising their agency and kind of guiding these applications, having them be used in the right way, and so on. Whereas, yeah, it's like those other apocalyptic AGI agency scenarios are kind of where that flips and humans lose their agency. But both, who knows? I mean, hopefully we can avoid one and, and have the other. That'd be, that'd be a wonderful future. Hopefully. And uh, our last story here is another one of these narrow applications, like you said. It's about how a deep learning tool bo- uh, boosts X-ray imaging resolution and hydrogen fuel cell performance and it's another case of uh, kind of modeling so there is now this ai that uh, produces high resolution modeled images from the lower resolution micro x-ray computerized tomography uh, so to my very limited understanding once you do these very um, uh, minor small kind of scans of atoms and, and things like that the sensing can be noisy. And so you can have these post-processing steps to really try and clean it up. And uh, yeah, if you can model uh, these hydrogen fuel cells better, you can improve the efficiency of them and potentially even in the future, use something like this to um, also understand human x-rays and and get more high-resolution x-rays. Yeah, I, I just thinking back to uh, I, I did some work like this as well at, U, at the University of Toronto a while back, and one of the things, the characteristics of this is like the amount of thinking work that goes into like how do I do some jujitsu on my raw data to kind of get it. You know, Andre, you were talking about the the idea of um, uh, of uh, sorry, model mathematical modeling tools more more generally than just AI, and and that's where the field was when I was there in like 2013-ish. You know, people were like, oh, let's take the Fourier transform of this or, you know, whatever crazy thing. And uh, and now it's just kind of like, hey, just hand it over to the magic, uh, the magic black box algorithm and it'll it'll sort this out for you. It's really remarkable just how far this stuff has gone in such a short period of time. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, we had all this modeling and 
that sort of just plays into having a data set, right? From yeah. which you can make further progress. So, yeah. Uh, well, that's a lot of science. Let's move on to policy and societal impacts, starting with Beijing to support key firms in building chat GPT-like AI models. So this is about these companies like Baidu and Alibaba trying to launch chat GPT competitors. And, um, you know, a lot of companies are based in Beijing. So now the city will support these firms. And uh, yeah, what was your take on this, Jeremy? Oh, I thought it was interesting for a couple of different reasons. You know, first off, we're so immersed in the kind of Western orbit. We start to think about like, oh, the AI wars are, you know, OpenAI Microsoft versus Google DeepMind and it's Bard versus ChatGPT and it's Edge versus Chrome and, and all that stuff. But, you know, across the Pacific, there's a whole other branch of the story playing out and uh, very publicly, you know, like you mentioned, Baidu, Alibaba, these two big companies. I wouldn't be surprised to see Tencent jump in. I wouldn't be surprised to see Huawei. Way jump in, you know, even Inspur. There are a bunch of companies in China that have really big, state, you know, equity in this uh, in this stuff. And um, yeah, you know, there's a lot that you end up learning when you look at the intersection of China and AI. One part of which is like the way China funds things. You know, this idea of like local government vehicles and like Beijing kind of stepping up and saying, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna lead this. It's not gonna be a federal thing. Like it's it's a sort of related to the national AI strategy, but it's funded at the local level. Um, and then another dimension of this too is fraud. So we've seen the Chinese semiconductor industry struggle to get off the ground, partly because so many of these giant multi-billion dollar investments end up evaporating due to fraud. You've got an environment where people are bathing in cash because the government wants to throw money at this. But you know, any any uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry, so to speak, can just like step up to the plate and say, "Hey, you know, we have we have a great uh, a great idea for a new semi company." And you know, they not that they'll get funded, but that's kind of the sort of mania that can take over when huge amounts of cash are sloshing around. So I thought that was definitely an interesting uh, interesting dimension of this. Yeah, I think uh, it reminds me if you've, you know, if you see, I mean, I've seen some discussions of this in this podcast over the years where, at least in policy circles, there have been discussions of the AI war, I think, oh no, the AI race between the US and China. And so people have been thinking about it for kind of a while. And there is uh, some differing opinions as to, you know, how competitive is it? uh, How much of a race it really is. I mean, we get a lot of researchers from China coming here to work in the US. So it's not quite that simple. Uh, You know, there's no easy way to say one is in the lead. There's a lot of applications. And in some ways, China is very strong. In some ways, they're pretty weak. Uh, And uh, yeah, I think this is uh, kind of going to just, it's clear that there's going to be a speed up in these countries investing in their domestic uh, AI talent, uh, which has already been the case. There's many times discussed AI strategies with different uh, nations now, you know, Canada and uh, China, of course, and, you know, tons of countries have these AI strategies, which talk about things like uh, ethics, but also investment and growth and things like that. So uh, yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I think another to your point about you know the the race dynamics and and what is and isn't a race and all that sort of thing it is an interesting question. And I think you know Jeffrey Ding has has one perspective. He's some somebody to follow with the China AI newsletter. Um, you know that, that's kind of more of a let, let's say like a uh, a collaborative perspective on on the U.S. China competition. Um, and a dimension of this too, to your point as well, is that they flag in the article. You know they they talk about how Chat GPT. Um, hasn't been made available in China. So kind of like playing into that, people really want something like ChatGPT and, and it's not available either. It's a little unclear right now why it's not available, but it might have to do with censorship. It might have to do with opening eyes on policies. For whatever reason, this is creating a big opening for you know the likes of Baidu to step in uh, with options here. Yeah, and uh, the other thing is, uh, I would also just imagine, uh, you know, Chinese is different from English, and yes, ChatGPT right. probably can speak Chinese, but I could easily see it being not nearly as good at other languages uh, that are less represented on the internet. So that's yet another dimension of, you know, how do we make this broadly accessible to different groups uh, with different interests and different backgrounds? And yeah, actually, that was a that's a really good point. It's a narrative that came up early, like in I think in like 2021, 2020, when we saw you know Naver in South Korea, and then like Russian labs and uh, and Chinese labs, like the, the one that came up with UN uh, UN 1.0 and some of those early breakthroughs. Um, I think that might have been Huawei or no, sorry, that was Inspur. But anyway, yeah, it's like people basically making that almost nationalistic kind of linguistic argument, saying, hey, we ought to have our own kind of horse in this race here and uh, anyway yeah really interesting how language plays into that yeah and just to make one more note uh, i always find it interesting how you look at the us and like we think like we know the internet right we know what's there but then you look at these other countries like yeah. russia or china and there's this whole other world that's so <laughs> yeah. different in terms of where people go you know, how it looks, uh, the like lingo and communication styles. And yeah, it's it's another kind of fascinating thing of uh, these are different internets, even though you yeah. can access them and go to Chinese websites. It's, it's just something you aren't aware of as a whole kind of, you know, you have different cultures and you have different internets. <laughs> Yeah, it makes it almost harder to to develop empathy for each other too. Like you know, if you're you're seeing different content, it's exposed in a different way, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, now we can talk about something I know you're very interested in, and is is definitely going to be a large discussion, and I think also is is definitely worth discussing. I think this is a new uh, book or a mm -hmm. new website. So this is at betterwithout.ai and it's called Only You Can Stop an AI Apocalypse. So maybe Jeremy, you can give us the intro to this. Ah, it's nice to talk about light things, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so this is a, a free book that's been published by David Chapman. He's a PhD in AI from MIT, um, former successful biotech founder, who's sort of like focused in on AI safety in, I guess, recent years. And he's put together this book. It's actually, I find it quite interesting because there are a bunch of different perspectives when it comes to the downsides of AI. You know, some people say, oh, well, you know what? We ought to focus on uh, the risk that AI is going to develop agency and be misaligned with humans and strip us of our rightful kind of cosmic inheritance uh, and, and basically take over and kill us. Uh, and so that there's that perspective. 
But then there are people who say, look, uh, we don't see that as being realistic. We don't think that's going to happen. We should worry about malicious applications in the short term and nation to nation kind of great power conflict. This is another kind of distinct perspective that has us almost focus in between those two possibilities and talk about just like what might happen organically as these AI systems become more and more available, as our as our world starts to break down, the coherence of our views on things start to become more and more influenced and controlled by AI. And so I thought it'd be useful to just kind of read a couple of excerpts uh, of this this book to give you a flavor for, for what David is arguing here. I think it's quite interesting. So this is from his book's introduction. He says somewhat dramatically, and I think fairly correctly, AI will make critical decisions that we cannot understand. Governments will take radical actions that make no sense to their leaders. Corporations, guided by artificial intelligence, will find their own strategies incomprehensible. University curricula will turn bizarre and irrelevant. Formerly respected information sources will publish mysteriously persuasive nonsense. We will feel our loss of understanding as pervasive helplessness and, me as, and meaninglessness. We may take up pitchforks and revolt against the machines, and in so doing, we may destroy the systems we depend on for survival. And so he's got a bunch of, um, you know, uh, other you know, things that he says, the last thing I'll mention is he does highlight the fact that you know, he's talked to a lot of people in the AI space about the long-term future and what it might look like. And uh, I really, this really resonated with me. It's very much my experience. Um, again, just to rip off from, from uh, David's book here, he writes, you know, so far we've accumulated a few dozen reasonably detailed, reasonably plausible bad scenarios. We found zero that lead to good outcomes. Most AI researchers think AI will have overall positive effects. This, seem to be this seems to be based on a vague general faith in the value of technological progress, however. It doesn't involve worked out ideas about possible futures in which AI systems are enormously more powerful than current ones. A majority of AI researchers surveyed also acknowledge that civilization-ending catastrophe is quite possible. And so anyway, this is just kind of this idea that... Um, very often when we're involved in an area of research, you know, it's, it's easy to like kind of see the positives of what we're doing, but like the big picture, like, holy shit, like we just, you know, figured out CRISPR. What does this mean for like bioweapons, for example, um, is, is something that's kind of harder to contend with and, and often not as easy to see coming. And so I think that's the pessimistic view he's putting forward there. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, for a while, uh, Ray Kurzweil's singularity idea was right. pretty popular, and that's like the opposite of an AI apocalypse. It's an AI utopia where AI, you know, liberates us and, and makes us into ultra humans or something along those lines. Um, and there's now a singularity institute and things like that. So, um, similarly extreme scenario, but I do think it's interesting, like you said, that with book is titled only you can stop an ai apocalypse <laughs> but uh, in in there it says i intend to draw attention to a broad middle ground of dangers more consequential than those considered by ai ethics and more likely than those considered by ai safety and uh, right. personally that's to me very interesting i think x risk i can see the concerns but i also am pretty Un, unconvinced by the arguments and i think uh it you know it's a whole discussion but definitely these more middle ground like there will be profound effects for sure even if you don't get to 
you know, AGI or whatever godlike AI. And even, you know, even if we don't make huge progress in AI beyond what we have now, one thing I'm concerned about is once we get progress in robotics and, and to right. some extent AI, you can get into perpetual war where you're just perpetually building robots and sending them out and fighting. And then we'll get climate change, you know, we'll have uh, resource constraints, we'll have territorial uh you know, issues. So for me, I think it's, there's not enough focus on what if there's no issue of an alignment? What if it's uh, more about what people do with AI? And that is one of the things that is definitely a big topic in AI safety, but it's something that I tend to think more about uh, maybe from a robotics perspective. Yeah, and it makes total sense. And like you know, as, as a guy who spends his, his time worrying about existential risk and, and AI alignment stuff, um, I, you know, I, I I still completely agree with you. I got to say, th this idea of a middle ground, right? Like we, yeah, in my view, we ought to have a massive investment in existential risk mitigation from from AI. Um, but that doesn't mean that we just like look at the capabilities that we have right now that we don't start drawing straight lines. Through through points that are connected and say, hey, like you know, what does this mean for weaponized drones? What does this mean for like bio warfare and and to say nothing of like crippling cyber attacks that seem very much like they're on the horizon? Um, yeah, so glad the book calls attention to this stuff. The, some of the policy ideas I, I thought were interesting. I think that there's maybe a, a bit of a a trend to, towards ignoring. Um, the lack of agency that people have as a result of things like great power conflict. It's not obvious to me that the US can decide to unilaterally not pursue AI development, which is something that is actually, um, by my reading, advocated in the in the book. Um, so, so, so that's challenging. Like, I, I think it would be great if we could do that. That is the ideal, in in my view, just because of my existential risk concerns. Um, but uh, but I, I just don't see it as something that's tractable in the short term. There are other cool proposals in there too. I, I recommend taking a look if you're curious. Yeah, and that's I think the flip side of AI safety. You know, it's it's kind of scary and almost depressing to think about these things as with any apocalypse, but. Will these uh, middle ground scenarios, these are things that we can pretty directly prepare for and try right. to avert with policy. With uh, X-Risk and AGI, it's not quite as easy because it's this emergent thing and who knows how it'll happen. But with some of these things of cyber attacks and, and military AI, um, that's something we can think about. It's concrete and there's policies you can put in place to try and avoid real bad situations. And the, I, I also think the policies that are good for that often are good as well for, for the existential risk and accident side. It's like there is some overlap there too, and maybe all the more reason to uh, to have people focus a little bit more on like the next two years uh, than, than necessarily the next 10 or the next, uh, next five or whenever AGI hits. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can almost think of, you know, we have a bit of a experience of this because talk about civilization ending technology, we've had nuclear bombs for 80 years and we have, have made efforts to prevent it from getting out of hand and have been somewhat successful. 
So there is uh, some precedent for maybe we can do it. And uh, jumping into the lightning round, uh, first story is, is directly related with <laughs> US, China, and other nations urge responsible use of uh, military AI. So there was uh, a first summit in The Hague on military AI, and there was a sort of symbolic statement call to action <laughs> endorsing responsible use of AI in the military. So it's not that meaningful ultimately in terms of sticking to anything specific, but uh, it's good that you know it's it's continuing to be a topic that is being discussed uh and there are organizations like well there's there's one organization literally titled stop killer robots uh so what do they want to do andre you know i'm pretty sure it has to do with killer robots and not having them uh yeah so yeah personally i think this is something that Maybe is like, you know, it's kind of funny because we have Terminator and, and it's very much in public consciousness, but with all this AI craze, so far we haven't seen much automated military AI. And it's another one of these things where it's just a matter of time until it hits. And, you know, our public consciousness is sort of like hit with a realization that this is happening. Yeah. And one of the, the really interesting, I remember having a discussion with somebody who is, now, I don't want to say he, who was from uh, Stop Killer Robots, that specific campaign. He might have been, oh man, I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, it was Jacob Forrester, actually, um, mm -hmm. uh, who I think at the time, anyway, I'm trying to remember if he was at, at Facebook or, or Google. But anyway, he was talking about this issue of you know, how do you define uh, automated weapons or, or killer robots in this case? in a way that doesn't allow people to kind of like creep up to the definition and beyond without anyone noticing like frog in hot water. So he, he was talking about one, you know, one thing was like, uh, you can have certain aspects of what it does be automated and then gradually like keep automating more and more all the while claiming, oh, it's not an overall autonomous system. You just have like different components. Oh, it has a little computer vision system, but there's still a human in the loop here, or the human will get called in the loop if it goes to make this kind of decision. And you can kind of imagine chipping away at the human control side as you automate more and more, taking advantage of the kind of slippery slope. And when there's great power conflict, you can imagine both sides having a powerful incentive to do exactly that. And so I think his argument, if I, I hope I'm not butchering it, it was something like, you know, we shouldn't think of that continuum as the thing we want to defend. We should think of the weaponization of these drones, of these weapons, as the hard line that we say nobody crosses this line. Now, presumably weaponization can also mean any number of different things. Maybe there's a continuum there too. But it's sort of an interesting dimension to this, I thought, that, uh, that felt relevant. Like, how do you define these automated weapons? And, and can we actually get to international consensus on what those definitions look like? For sure, yeah, it's uh, it is a topic of conversation, and there's already been new stories that are like, you know, is this your first use of an autonomous right AI yeah. weapon in in <laughs> Russian uh, drones in particular? And there was also a case in Syria, so yeah, it's one of these things where it's early days, but there's a lot of questions and a lot of things to think about. Um, and then jumping back to the first thing we covered about Beijing, 
Our next story is uh, South Korea aims to join AI race as a startup uh, rebellions uh, launches a new chip. So uh, this Rebellions Incorporated launched a chip that is meant to compete with NVIDIA in hardware that powers uh, revolutionary AI technology. And uh, yeah, it's it's a big deal. Uh, we saw how the US limited uh, exports to China of GPUs and GPUs are needed to run AI. It's actually a real kind of play to um, cripple AI development. Uh, and it, to me, it's, it makes a lot of sense that this is happening. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe like the, how, how bold their, um, uh, their push was here. I think it was one of the lines, uh, they're saying that they're, they're trying to push to lift the market share of Korean AI chips in domestic data centers from basically zero to 80% by 2030. Like, that's domestic, sure, but that that is that's a big big change. Like if, if that's actually the the target, um, I can imagine a lot of a lot of challenges that stand in the way. But you know, one of these competitors to Nvidia surely is going to uh, to do reasonably well eventually. And you know, it's it's another one of those leapfrogging things too. Like there are a bunch of strategies people are trying around optical computing and things like that, where. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to find 2030 looks like it's you know constructed on the the backs of very different kinds of companies. It's always possible, um, you know, quantum computing as well, like that sort of thing. So, what do the AI chips of the future look like? Well, this is another big bet. Yeah, and it's a big question because if you look into it, you know, as like it's only been a decade, really. It was like a decade ago when people realized. GPUs are great for AI. Yeah. Uh, before that, people didn't use GPUs that much. And uh, there's been a sort of Moore's law for GPUs where there was very quick progress on the capabilities of GPUs. Uh, and that is, you know, we are kind of starting to hit the limit. Uh, so in the discussion of scaling, I think this is sometimes ignored of Hardware is is gonna hit some limitations pretty soon, and it's not clear if we can, you know, easily circumvent it. But uh, we'll see. And on to art and fun stuff in our final segment. First up, we have another concerning story of voice actors are having their voices stolen by AI. We discussed about the uh, narration story just now, and this is very similar where uh, for video games, um, there was, uh, again, something pretty similar where they these voice actors were asked to sign their voice rights away to company-run AI voice generators when signing on for a new project. Uh, and in some cases, it's been contracts with these classes built in and some didn't know that these classes existed. So um, yeah, it's basically the same thing. And it's, you know, clearly now I think professionals in the field know that this is a thing and are reckoning with it. Well, a counterpoint to professionals in the field uh, know that this is a thing is me. I have no idea if the contract I signed actually gives away all these rights. Um, I'm like I'm personally not super worried because I don't you know I'm, I don't plan on making a career uh, with audiobooks or anything like that. But uh, you know, like 
surely I can't be the only person who doesn't read terms of service. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, you know, please, uh, please buy the, the, uh, audiobooks that we make because they may be the last ones. <laughs> that are recorded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, I think if you make a living in a situation, it's, uh, probably on your mind. And yeah. our next story is actually about uh, how Keanu Reeves says deepfakes are scary, con- confirms his film contracts ban digital edits to his acting. Mm. And um, yeah, that's another development where you know you can sign away rights to your voice, you can sign away rights to your face as well, to your appearance. Uh, and it's just probably going to become a standard thing to negotiate in contracts. I mean, what if for Marvel, they could just generate these superheroes of Black Widow or whatever without using the actor? That would save a lot of money, you know? So another fascinating question of how this plays out. Also makes you wonder like how in in the long, when I say long term, I guess with AI, I mean like the the next 20 minutes, (laughs) but like in the long term, like how defensible is uh, you know, is that kind of regulation even if you can have somebody spin up like, I don't know, I don't think we're that far away from being able to like automate the creation of an entire like Marvel quality movie like 10 years from now, I, I expect, you know, you know, make a video from Facebook and already make decent videos. Like if, if progress continues like that, like it has in other fields, uh, you know, I, I could just grab an Andre picture from the internet without asking, produce a video for like 30 bucks and I, like it, it may there may be a regulation against it, but enforceability, boy, I like I just don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think it's you know I, I sometimes wonder if I'm too pessimistic because I've been in academia because on one hand, it's sort of like you get so used to fast AI progress, you <laughs> stop being impressed by it, but on the other hand, you keep you know all of the like limitations and one of the things yeah. that's been of limit is kind of longer things that involve yeah. a temporal dimension. And so with movies, uh, that's very long for AI. So I could definitely see it happening in a decade. I could definitely see it not happening. And uh, yeah, we'll yeah. see. No, that's a good point. Like the context window question, like how long is the model's context window or whatever? Like, I guess we're going to have to find a way past that or transformers are going to have to change or something, but, but that's true. Yeah. There are, there are a couple of, a uh, couple of bugs. Yeah. And, and to be fair, you know, many movies are already half computer generated anyway, particularly <laughs> Marvel. So that's yeah. AI is going to generate a big part, part of movies, but maybe not all of them. If it can even figure out those plots, cause they are so complex. <laughs> Yeah, we need an AI to really keep up with everything. (laughs) And then uh, jumping back to video game voice actors, we've seen uh, there's an article here on video game voice actors doxxed and harassed in targeted AI voice attack. So this is about how several uh, voice actors of somewhat uh, controversial characters have been targeted with um, copies you know, with messages being posted in their voice saying things that they don't want to say. And we already saw this and discussed this pretty recently with, um, I think, Eleven Labs, whatever it's called. And uh, yeah, it's particularly concerning for cases 
like this where there are there's a lot of toxic people in video games and a lot of people who really already target and harass uh artists in the space and now you have this new tool that in some ways is very emotionally challenging to deal with of hearing yourself and and you know having this violation of privacy uh so yeah sad news yeah yeah did you um i wonder did you did you hear the uh the fake uh justin trudeau joe rogan um yeah right like th- th- so I-, I don't know this is kind of one of those things where i hope humans are going to get uh robust to this sort of thing the same way we we think about commercials is like oh they're trying to sell me something you know i'm not going to pay attention to this uh, but it, yeah, it's hard to imagine, like with with real voices, that that line between reality and uh, uh, and, and fantasy is really getting blurred. And hey, maybe that's to the point of David Chapman, who wrote that uh, that only you can stop the AI apocalypse book. Uh. Yeah, I think a lot of us. I am a little bit more optimistic because we've we've seen this with uh, porn deepfakes and other. You know, there's a lot of bad ways to use AI, and but the good side is. You can't. You did, it's being done on these websites, on these platforms, and these websites can control what you do. And you know, on YouTube, you can't post full movies because there's copyright copyright uh, control. And you know, what if you can have copyright control of your voice or appearance? Definitely, sort of seemingly possible with AI. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 as, as usual an arms race of people who want to do bad things and people who want to prevent people from doing bad things. And to your point, you know, maybe to add a little bit of optimism uh, to the equation here, it, it is true that like a lot of the solutions to this, like, also can come from AI, and we're even seeing this on the catastrophic risk side where. OpenAI's strategy, which you know is controversial in the space, but is like, hey, we're going to use AI to help us solve the alignment problem. And like, there's a dimension of this for all of these other applications, like you said, using AI to spot, hey, you know, copyrighted material or voices that are being fabricated. Yeah, yeah. If you can fabricate a voice, it helps you, uh, you know, match <laughs> and see if it's the same voice. So definitely. And let's finish up with a less serious story. Something that's just kind of funny, uh, you know, we don't need to worry about <laughs> sadness. Uh, and it's about how TikTok- TikTokers are roasting McDonald's hilarious drive through AI order fails, and it shows that robots won't take over restaurants anytime soon. Uh, and this is a pretty straightforward story. Really, it's just how this uh, person had a drive through experience, and seemingly the voice recognition was very bad. So they were saying, you know, asking for something relatively simple, and then the order came out as something kind of very silly, like four ketchup packs or something. Um, and yeah, I think uh, it's it's kind of been interesting how as things like GPT-3 and text-to-image things uh, come out, especially with text-to-image. I remember last year, there were a lot of just funny things people did, like meme-level stuff. And yeah, I think it's it's fun to see how, you know, it's new technology. And in, in some cases, you know, it's novel, it's interesting, and sometimes it's funny uh, and frustrating, and uh, we can kind of laugh about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you have to at a certain point, right? I mean, this sort of thing, and we're going to encounter it more and more, I guess, more, more and more people are going to get comfortable with the failure modes of these systems. You know, it's it's not just a magic black box. And, you know, if you've interacted with a, a crappy ordering AI, maybe that gives you intuition that you can then use the next time you're in a situation where, uh, you know, where, where you can interact with a fallible AI system. But, uh, you know, it's funny, the, these ordering bots, like I've started to, to see them, like we're starting to see them in, in Canada all over the place, in uh, sushi restaurants has been a big one. And it's just kind of interesting to see like how quickly it's actually kind of coming into the physical world. Um, but uh, anyway, nothing meme-worthy that we've seen, but only a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like if you're all out, you might want to try to do something good. But uh, it will be funny when, when Siri starts using ChatGPT type stuff. Oh, God. There will be some entertaining results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, with that funny story, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast. Once again, you can check out Last Week in AI for our Substack, which has a podcast and also our text newsletter. And if you like the podcast, uh, you know, please share and review and leave feedback. And feel free to uh, email editorial at skynettoday.com if you want to let us know whether you would like to hear us talk about research or trends and, and not just news. And, uh, you know, be sure to tune in as we keep going week by week.